good to be here, and I want to say uh, I feel very privileged to be here, and I'm also excited about the, the great amount of interest that there's been in learning to study the Bible and improve our skills in that area. I'm also very excited uh, about presenting today's study. I was telling Van earlier at the house that I've, I've always been one that kind of rolled my eyes at all these different acronyms that people come up to describe every process there is in life, but... But I guess as I've gotten older and I'm getting more forgetful, some of those things are helpful. And so I'm going to give you an acronym, even though that's something that I, again, I kind of rolled my eyes at. But I want us to think about these three weeks of teacher training in three ways that we're trying to internalize, we're trying to organize, and we're trying to externalize. That is, we're trying to understand how to get God's Word in here first. And then organize that in a way where when we externalize it, that people are able to follow us, people are able to understand what we've learned, and we're able to communicate in an effective way what we've learned to others so they can learn those things as well. That, that is the goal of this. Uh, it's not so we can polish our speakers or we can hone our abilities necessarily in the, in the idea of presentation skills. We're going to talk about that some, Lord willing, next week a little bit, but our focus really needs to be on being effective communicators of God's Word. And so today we're going to talk about arranging or organizing a study or sermon. So maybe you're here today and you're, not, uh, and you're a lady and you're not going to get up and do public teaching, obviously, but, but this will be helpful to you as well, and I want you to know why. Um, the more and more that we exercise our mind toward being disciplined with God's Word, the more our senses will become exercised uh, to be able to communicate that just in conversation. And, and I'll tell you why I'm really excited about this, because this is my struggle area. I, I really struggle with organizing things. And so if you're ever in a biblical conversation and some of you talk with me about the Bible, some Jackson talks with me a lot. He knows sometimes I throw a bunch of information out there and then I've got to sort through it and then say it again. And I'm sure that probably is frustrating for some people. But my mind doesn't always organize things in a really clear and concise manner. And so what we're going to talk about today is how can we be disciplined in organizing the material that we're trying to present to someone else. And I think you'll find it helpful. Uh, the handouts that you have, uh, these are charts that I developed after uh, studying with Clint Goodman years ago. And the material that's in your hand, the one that's longer, that's about 13 pages, is material that Clint Goodman put together that he shared with me years ago. And I've reformatted some things and personalized some things. And I just want you to know, this is not my material. Um, Clint actually came up with this material with the help of others. And so the reason I'm sharing that with you is this. When he shared this with me, and I believe it's been about eight or nine years ago, it completely changed the way that I structured sermons, and my teaching has been much more effective since that point. Uh, it's, just, it's a very simple way of organizing things. And so we're going to go through this guide today, but I want, to, I want to start by giving a little bit of presentation to really get our minds in the right direction today before we really dive into the material. I don't know how long that's going to take. Uh, it may take 30 minutes. It may take 45 minutes. But once we finish the presentation aspect, uh, we will open up the floor to the men for Q&A one at a time. Again, I want to remind everybody, in case you weren't here last week, uh, I don't mind being the bad guy. And so if somebody's trying to talk to somebody across the room and they, and they weren't recognized, I will ask you to please stop talking. 
Uh, we want to do this in an orderly fashion. Uh, I don't like being the bad guy, but I will be the bad guy. So, so let's all please be mindful of one another and keep this in an orderly fashion. And uh, let's have a good study today. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 2 through 4. Paul writing here says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands him, however in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who, edif uh, who prophesies edifies the church. Now, a lot of these scriptures that we're going to start out with are, are not in your handout. I'm just warning you there, so if you're taking notes, you, these will be things you might need to write down on the very back page or something. If you think about what he's saying here, he's writing to this church, and obviously he's talking about tongues, which is a foreign language. And this is something I think is probably rather obvious to us, but that's not the point of his teaching. So there's something obvious about if you don't know another language and someone's speaking in that language, you have no idea what they're talking about, right? That's the easy, simple concept of this. But what I want us to do is think about this as teachers. When we get up and we throw out a bunch of information that's not very organized and people are not able to really understand what we're saying, is that helpful? It's almost like a foreign language. And so I don't often ask this, but, but raise your hand if you've ever sat through a sermon and after it was over you said, I don't have a clue what we just talked about. All right? Guys, raise your hand if you've ever given one of those sermons. God has called us to edification. And I want you to know something. I shouldn't say that, but, but I do want you to know. It is just as wrong for us to get up and preach a sermon that's not edifying as it is committing another sin. See, God has a purpose and a plan for teachers, and it's not to be slot fillers. It's not to just get up and spill a bunch of random information. It's to be diligent about our efforts to study God's Word and be an effective teacher of God's Word. So I want to give you a concept today as we think about the purpose uh, for organization, the importance of organization, and I just want to give you this illustration. Uh, I think this is from Yellowstone Park, or uh, I may be wrong about that, but this is one of the parks here in America, and, and I want you to notice there's a lot of different terrain, uh, and then right in the middle of all this terrain is this trail. You know, if I go, if I go there, I'm going to stay on the trail, because I don't know this place, but you know, there, there's other people uh, that we call guides or, or park rangers. And, and their job is they know everything about the terrain. So if somebody gets lost out there, and now they got GPS and all that, but, but they know the terrain, and, and they probably can go out there and recognize certain trees because they've seen them before. And, and if you ask them to go around the lakes, they probably know where all those are, and they can navigate the very difficult terrain. You know why? Because they've spent a lot of time there. And that's really how we are a lot of times when we're studying God's Word. We spend a lot of time in God's Word. So maybe you spend 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 hours studying a subject. And then you get up here and you know all the terrain. And so you, you get people on the trail and then you veer off into the woods. Well, guess what? They haven't been in the woods. You've been in the woods, and so you go into the woods, and you know exactly where you're at, exactly where you're going, and then you come back out of the woods onto the trail. And guess where everybody else is? Standing on the edge of the trail, looking in the woods, going, where did he go? you got to be a good guide. 
This is not just about taking the journey that we, that we know how to take or, or, or go around and navigate the terrain that we've been on. We've got to be able to keep people with us. So my point is this, stay on the trail. Stay on the trail because people can follow you on the trail. So, so then here's my other question. Do you have a trail? I think that's the bigger problem. Is, is we work on studying the material, and that's, one, that's wonderful, that's good, we need to know the material, but we never design a trail that people can follow, and so that's what today is about. And I want you to always remember, when you get up to speak, you are a trail guide. I know that sounds cheesy and corny, but, but think of it that way, because remember, people are following you, and it does them no good if you're up here going off into places that they have no clue where you're at. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, and this, this actually is on the guide. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Guys, you do not have to have a degree. You do not have to have gone to some seminary or some college to be able to preach. Paul told Timothy, I want you to take what you've learned, and he said, I want you to commit those to who? To doctors, to scholars, he said, to faithful men. Faithful men. And not everybody needs to be a teacher, and we'll have more to say about that later, but faithful men are expected to have a capability of teaching God's people. It, it's not complicated. We, we sometimes overcomplicate it now. Are there complex things in the Bible? We talked about that last week. There are complex things in Scripture that take some time and maturity and other things for us to learn. But our goal is not just to be teachers of God's Word, but to learn how to also train others to be teachers. So you that are fathers, if, if you don't have a plan for your teaching and you really don't have a system for organizing your material, how are you going to be able to teach your sons to give a lesson? How are you going to do that? If you can't organize what you know in an effective way of teaching, how are you going to teach your family about God? Because, see, God's called you to that. He's called fathers to instruct their children, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Every one of us needs to be a teacher in some capacity. And so this is going to help us to be more effective in our teaching. And we're going to use 2 Timothy chapter 2 today as the framework for this. 2 Timothy chapter, two, uh, uh, chap, 2 Timothy chapter 3, rather, verses 16 through 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to start by just saying this. It's God's Word that is profitable. And, and we don't need to get up here and, and just focus on some worldly wisdom or, or, you know, people are really not interested in, in what we know in a worldly way. You know, obviously there's a, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's a time for that where we're using that to make an analogy. Jesus did that in his teaching. Paul in teaching there at, at, on Mars Hill he actually used their own paganism to teach them about the true and living God. So I'm not saying there's never a time to talk about something that might be carnal to help us understand something spiritual. But what I'm saying is this, focus on God's Word because God's Word is profitable. And I, I, don't, I don't think any of us are naive to that. We all know that God's Word is profitable. But what is it profitable 
four. And as we start thinking about organizing, I'm not going to give you Ian's guide to organizing or Clint Goodman's uh, guide to organizing or Pat Manning's guide, because the truth is God has given us a way to categorize his word and where it's effective and how we can utilize that uh, for the edification of the church. And so he says it's profitable, and we're going to talk about these four things, and I, I'm going to tell you right now, there's going to be some repetition. We are going to hammer these things over and over and over, and we're going to do that for a purpose. And I hope that's not tedious, but I, will, I do hope that it makes it stick in your mind and it'll be helpful to you. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So let's start by defining what these things are. Okay, if you look at your handout, let's see, this is on page two, is that right? Page three. Van's going to have to help me out on the pages today. All right, look at page three. Now, we used a lot of Strong's last week. We've got some Thayer's definitions here today, and, and I want to give you a little bit of information about the difference between Strong's and Thayer's. We talked about how Strong's works and what the italicized words mean and where, what words were translated and how to identify all that. Thayer's is a little bit different in a couple of different ways. For one, Thayer's is a lot more free, if you will, with defining words. Strong's tries to stay in a very small uh, scope, if you will, and just define words just based on definition. Thayer's gives more of a definition and an explanation of how those words are used in various parts of Scripture. So you might think of Thayer's as sort of the dynamic equivalent. We talked about that, if you remember, the thought-for-thought translation versus the word-for-word. Thayer's is sort of the more geared toward the thought-for-thought uh, lexicon if you're looking up Greek words. However, a lot of times where Thayer's is helpful, if you have actually have a paper Thayer's or a, a hardback Thayer's, is not only will he give you these definitions, he'll also give you examples of where those are used in specific verses. And so that's also very helpful. So he might give you an indication that this word is defined this way and here's where it's defined that way in its context. Now, Obviously, there's some room for error there as you're talking about someone who is giving their opinion of what the context means. However, again, this is about studying. Don't be gullible. Don't just take someone's word for it. But it is a valuable resource that we can use. And we're going to use it today because it's very helpful in understanding the terminology that's used, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction righteousness. And I don't know if that's too small for you to see, so you might have to look on your handout. But Thayer's defines doctrine as teaching or instruction. That's the literal definition of the word. And then he gives some explanations to that as well. That which is taught or doctrine, teachings or precepts. And so we use the word doctrine and I think we all have, uh, we have a way of uh, thinking about that in our mind as doctrine is what we practice, what we believe is true. That's, 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 actually, you know, that's a good way of thinking about it. But a lot of times it just means what is taught. That's what it means. What is taught? Well, what is taught where? Well, all Scripture is profitable for doctrine. What is taught in Scripture? That's really what doctrine is. What does the Scripture say about this? We'll dive into that a little more, bit more in a minute. So reproof is the next word that he uses, which is Strong's word, number 1650, if you do the Greek by number. It means a proof, 
that by which a thing is proved or tested or conviction. Correction is restoration to an upright or right state. Correction, improvement of life or character. And then instruction, which is instruction in righteousness. This one has a very long definition, and we're not going to read all that right now from the paper. And if you look up on the screen when I scroll down, uh, it runs all the way to the bottom of the page. But we're going we're gonna to look at these once again and, and try to find a way to really uh, understand these different four terminologies. But if you notice here, uh, these various elements of Scripture are broken down. And they're broken down in a way that I, I think we can look at them and understand them. And it's important to do that because what we see is the gospel preachers used all four of these things in their sermons. They used all four of these things. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So what, what is doctrine? Well, we defined it by, by Thayer's definition here, but, but let's think of it this way. Isaiah 28, verse 9. This is a verse that we looked at last week. Whom shall he teach knowledge, and to whom shall he make to understand doctrine? What is the goal of doctrine? To give us two things, knowledge and understanding. And from that knowledge and understanding comes what? Wisdom. And so that's the goal of doctrine. If we don't define what something means if we don't understand how the Bible uses a concept or, or understand, you know, for instance, let's say that I get up here and I decide today that I'm going to talk about uh, perseverance, okay? Uh, that word is often translated patience in the King James, and so we all had different ideas about what patience means. And so some of you think, well, patience is, is that's when you have to wait on something and you, and you have calmness while you're waiting. Well, that word can also mean to endure hardship or it can mean to have fortitude. And so what kind of patience am I talking about? You've got to be more narrow. You've got you to figure out what you're talking about and let everybody else know what you're talking about. So that's what we're saying. Let's define what we're talking about before we ever get into the other elements of our scripture or of our sermon. And so that's going to take some time. But that is, that is the first thing we need to do. You know, when Peter stood there in Acts chapter 2, he didn't start out his sermon by convicting the people. What did he do? How did he start his sermon? He taught about Jesus. He taught about who Jesus was. He taught about that that was part of God's plan. He talked about his death. He talked about his resurrection. And then he proved it with prophecy. What is it? That's doctrine. That's doctrine. But you know, he also included something else in that sermon. What did he say? You have by wicked hands have taken and crucified and slain. Do you think that was convicting? He was rebuking them, wasn't he? And so that's the next word that we have for reproof, or sometimes we, we call that rebuke. And I want you to think of rebuke as, as sort of a, a showing a mirror to people. That's what we're doing. We're showing them a mirror. And, and by what standard did we use to show them that mirror? Again, this, it, it's going to be very obvious. We're going to use God's Word because that's exactly what James says God's Word is. It's a mirror. James 1, 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into what? The perfect law of liberty. He's looking into God's Word. He's seeing himself, beholding himself. And what's he seeing? What is he seeing? He says, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So we take God's word and we say, okay, where are you at? Here's the mirror. Look in the mirror. Look at yourself. Don't be a forgetful here, but look in the mirror and see where you're lacking. 
Now, this is the kind of preaching I heard a lot of when I was a kid. We would come in, and someone would teach us what something was, and then they would, there'd be a, about 80% rebuke. And we'd all leave, and we'd go, man, I'm, I messed up. <laughs> and we all felt convicted, but, but, but I didn't always have a way of, of, of dealing with that. And so it's not helpful just to define what a problem is and then tell everybody that they're guilty of it. But then there's got to be the next element, which is correction. And, and correction is an important aspect because if we're going to talk about the problem, identifying the problem is just a very small portion of what we need to get where we want to be. So then comes in correction. And so correction, you might think of as something's broken and we're going to fix it. And this is more of a short-term thing. Look at Ephesians 4.28. Let him that stole steal no more. Okay. <laughs> you know what that is? Just stop. Okay? Here's, the first, here's your first key. If you're, if you're stealing something, here's the first way to correct that. Stop stealing. You say, well, that's very obvious. Yeah, it's very obvious, right? So that's correction. Let's, let's try to identify how we're going to turn this thing around. But then there's instruction in righteousness. So now let's read some of the definitions here. The whole training and education of children, which relates to the cultivation of mind and morals and employs for this purpose now commands and admonitions, now reproof and punishment. It also includes the training and care of the body. That's very wordy. So let's just sort of condense that, make it a little bit more succinct. It, it has in mind maintaining doing the right things. Maintaining ri- living the, kind, the, the right life. And so what is training for? Is it to give us a better day? No, it's to give us a better life. And that's why if you go and you exercise and you go out and exercise for two weeks, guess what you benefited? Not much. You know, these these short-term efforts, they're helpful, but you got to stick with it. And so we also see that in in Scripture. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7 says this, But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. You know, the first step in in getting over some sin problem in your life is just to stop doing it. But but do you really think that after building a habit of committing sin, that just saying, I'm just going to stop doing it, that that's really going to be enough? You've got to start doing the right things. And he says, exercise yourself toward godliness. And so that's, that's the maintenance part of this. It's, it's doing the right things over and over. And I want you to notice, going back to our Ephesians 4 passage, that he didn't just say, hey, if you're stealing, stop stealing. That's not all he said. He said, if you're stealing, stop stealing. But then he said, but rather, okay, we're going to stop doing this, but we're also going to do this. But rather, let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Now I want you to notice the three things that he says after he says stop stealing. He says instead of stealing and taking from other people, start working with what? Your hands. You've been using your hands to take. Use your hands for something good. And then you can take what's good and you can obtain what you desire. And then I want you to turn around and instead of being a taker, be a giver. What have we done here? We've not just done behavior modification, but we've trained the heart from the wisdom of God's Word so we're a different person. See, that's, that's the bigger part of this. Friends, this is what God's Word is designed to do. It's, it's not designed just so we can all know a lot more than we did or know some things about God. It's given to us so we can know God. 
so we can know God, so we can be like God. And I don't mean that in a blasphemous way. I mean, God has called us to holiness and righteousness. And just simply knowing some things or being convicted about some things is not going to get us to where we need to be. But all four of these things together really are a completion of what God's Word is designed to do. So let's go back to instruction righteousness in a different vein here. In the second definition that Thayer's gives, he said, whatever in adults also cultivates the soul, especially by correcting mistakes and curbing passions. Instruction which aims at increasing virtue. You know what the problem is with somebody that's been a thief all their life when they quit stealing? They still want to steal things. That desire is still there. That passion is still there. Notice Colossians 3, 5. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Why do people steal? Because they covet something. They see it, they want it, they take it. And so he says, quit stealing, but he also says, okay, here's what else you need to do. You need to start doing different things with your hands. You need to look at, look at life differently. Be a giver, not a taker. And then he said, then you need to take that passion. You need to curb it. You need to curb your passion. Put to death that desire. And so there's a lot to, to really think about here in relation to these four things. And I promise we're going to, to talk about why this helps us organize things. Because let's, let's just look at the wisdom of taking these things and using them in order and how we might structure a study or a sermon, or just a conversation for that matter. So let's say that we decide to just start correcting a problem. But we haven't identified the problem. And no one's been convicted of that. Well, number one, we don't even know what we're talking about. And number two, the person that we're trying to talk to about, they don't see any need to correct whatever this ambiguous problem is in their life. So where do you start? You start with doctrine. You move to reproof. Then you move to correction. You move to instruction and righteousness. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying every one of these elements has to be in every single sermon you ever give. But if you're doing topical sermons, topical studies, it's very helpful to make sure that you've got all four of these elements in your study. You know why? Because that's thorough, it's complete, and you're going to hit everything that you need to hit. This is according to God's design. And you're going to ensure that it's going to be effective. Why? Because we've taught about it. We've made sure that people know if they personally have this issue and we've shown them how God's Word tells them to correct this problem and maintain a life of godliness. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the Word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. I want to start by pulling out three words, or three phrases, if you will. Preach the word, sound doctrine, and truth. What is that? It's all the same thing. The word is truth, and the truth is sound doctrine. That is right doctrine, or correct Doctrine. Preach what? Preach the Word. That's what he says. Preach the Word. We've got to preach the Word. And I'll tell you why. Because somebody's always preaching something else. Always preaching something else. What was his concern here? If you don't preach the Word, when, the, uh, when, that, when that desire comes in and people 
They'll find people that will tickle their ears. And so you got to stand up and you got to preach the word. You got to preach what's right and what's sound and what's true. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, we talked about those four elements. Let's talk about what we do with those things. He says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. So back on your sheet, these things are also broken down and defined. And, and I'm doing this because I want us to not only see it, but know what you're looking at when you go home and you're using this guide later. These are the verb uh, that are these are the verbs that are attached to this process of what are we going to do? We're going to use doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. These are the ways of accomplishing that. So one of the things is to reprove, to reprove. Uh, this is something that is not fun. I, I've never met somebody that said, man, I love being rebuked. Well, I, I say that. I actually did meet somebody who said that. I love being rebuked. They said, I love it when a preacher just hits me right in the face. I thought... I love you. Because <laughs> most people don't. We don't like to be re rebuked. We don't like somebody to, to expose something that's wrong in our life. But is that wrong for us to do that? No, that's what God's told us to do with his word. Rebuke. Reprove. Expose things. Exhort. So exhort is a little bit different from re rebuke and reprove. This is less about... Convicting and more about encouraging, if you will. Exhort is, is really about encouraging. So you look at the first definition of the word exhort there. It says to call to one side, to call for or to summon. Think of it this way. You ever had somebody that was older who needed to correct you about a problem and they said, hey, could you come here for a minute? You got real close and they put their arm around you and they very gently instructed you. That's exhort, okay? You might think a rebuke is this. And, and I'm not saying every rebuke has to be like this, but think of rebu rebuke as this and exhort is like this. Another word that we see in Scripture used for that is the word entreat. And so we see uh, in one instance where Timothy is told that as an evangelist not to rebuke an older man, but to entreat him as a father. Entreat him as a father. That is more the exhortation line of thinking. We're going to encouragingly instruct. And then there's the word doctrine, and if you notice, it's teaching. That's what it is. Teaching or the act of teaching. So we're not going to go through all these today. I just want to, to, to show you the relationship of these things as they relate to doctrine. We're going to continue on. These things command and teach. This is another verb that, we're, that we read here. Command these things. Well, that's a little bit different, isn't it? There's instruction. There's commanding. Well, I had somebody tell me not long ago, he said, there's only two commandments in the entire New Testament. I thought, where in the world did he get that idea? He said, well, love God and love your neighbor. Okay. Well, let's, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sorry, I overused that statement, but I'm probably going to use it again before the day's over. Just because the word command is not there, like I command you to do this, what are not commands in the New Testament? When we're instructed to do or not do something, they're commands. If God says don't do this, that's a command. If God says do this, that's a command. It's not a suggestion. And so what's he say? You take these things I've taught you, you command them. What things was he talking about? Well, for one, he was told about the organization of the church. 
He was told how women ought to behave in the church. He was told to teach the women about what? About modesty. He was told to teach the younger men uh, about how they ought to behave and teach all the men that they need to be men of prayer and, and that they need to be men of faith and they don't need to use their hands for wrathful things. On and on and on he talks to Timothy and then what does he say? You command these things and you teach them. You command them. That's another thing that we do. Now, I want to say that the authority that we're given, notice here, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Whose authority? Whose authority? Not your authority. These are done by the authority of the Word of God. And we're going to look at that word that's translated authority in Titus 2 here in just a second. These things, he says, speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Now, what were these things that he was talking about here in Titus 2? The things that are of sound doctrine. You know what he said? You tell the older men that they need to behave this way. You tell the older women they need to behave this way. In fact, you tell the older women that they need to teach the younger women that they need to behave this way. And you tell the young men to be sober and then you be an example. And then he says, these things speak and exhort and rebuke. With all authority. So there's different elements and different ways of presenting. There's a time to speak. There's a time to rebuke. There's a time to exhort or to encourage and to be a little softer. And guys, you've got to learn how to do that in your teaching. That, that's what God's told them to do. We need to implement these things within our teaching. Don't just get so uh, tied in on the, con on the content that you forget the purpose and how we utilize that content. I tell you, you don't want to get up and just be a rebuker. Just be a rebuker. That could be harmful. And I tell you, it, it, people will get tired of it. They'll get tired of it. A young man gave a sermon not that long ago, and he got up and he, he rebuked the congregation. His sermon, I, I got to look at his sermon here. His sermon is it it about 80% rebuke. 80% rebuke. And, you know, we talked with the leaders there, and they told us, you know, mo most of what he said was right. There was a few things, his, his perspective was off a little, bit, uh, a little bit, and he needed help with his perspective, but most of what he said was right. But I'll tell you what it did. It made a lot of people mad, and a lot of people were happy about it. Now, one widow lady put it the best way. She said, he's a young man that stepped in old man's shoes. A young man that stepped in old man's shoes. And what, 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 what she was really trying to express is he really was not the person to give that message. That message probably would have been received really well by someone who had a lot of experience and perhaps was an elder. They had the credibility to get up and give that message. But I know when we're young, we got more zeal than we have judgment. More zeal than judgment. And we want to tackle everything that we see that's problematic and we assume that the elders have no idea what's going on. I've got to expose this problem and rebuke everybody. Guys, there's a reason we don't know everything that the elders are doing. And we don't need to know everything the elders are doing. I'm not just talking about here in plain view, but, but I want you to think about this. Do you honestly think that the men who are watching don't know what's going on? That's what they do. They watch. They watch. And all I'm saying is be careful. Be careful when you get up and speak that you don't throw the pendulum too far to one side and that you lose your credibility because they're going to go, well, I wonder what he's going to get up and chastise us about today. 
Have a balance of these things. There's a time for rebuke, but there's a time for exhortation, for positive things, for just teaching. There's a time for all those things. And notice what he says at the bottom. Let no man despise you. Let no one despise you. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, and we're going to come back to this a little later and break it down. Till I come, give attendance to reading, again, to exhortation and to doctrine. So this is a common theme that we see, these different concepts being used. Command, teach, speak, exhort, rebuke. These are the things that we do with God's Word. So again, that breakdown is on your chart. I'm not going to take time to read through these. I just want, to, want you to... Uh, to notice these in your handout so that you'll understand when you go back through what you're looking at and why you're looking at that. So again, speak, exhort, and rebuke. Okay, so we saw a couple of other words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and that was where he said, preach the word, uh, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, with all what? Long-suffering and doctrine with patience. Teach with patience, he says, so that's what the word here, long-suffering, means. It literally means to suffer for a long time or to endure suffering for a long time. And that's, that's the concept of patience. Usually you don't have to be patient in situations that aren't trying your patience. And so guess what? People are going to try your patience. And I want you young speakers especially, because some of you older guys already know this, you need to maintain your expectations when you teach someone. And, and I, I had a very difficult time with that because I would go in and I would very passionately and aggressively present some information that I felt like someone needed to have and they would do nothing about it. And I would leave there and I'd be so frustrated with them going, what is wrong with them? This is so blatantly obvious. I mean, if they really love God, they would just change their life. What does he say? Be patient. Let me ask you a question. When someone exposes a problem in your life, do you change it right then and there? Are you over it and done? I'm not. <laughs> I should be. But we're not always wired that way, are we? We've got to be patient with people. You know what that means? You may have to teach the same thing several times before people get it. It just happens. Titus chapter 2 that we looked at a moment ago, the word that he uses here, authority, notices an injunction, a mandate, a command. So he's not saying, Titus... Use your authority to teach. That's not what he's saying. He's saying teach these things in an authoritative way. And so these are the commands of the Lord. We read that at the end of 1 Corinthians 14 where he says, If anyone thinks he's spiritual, let him know the things I write to you are what? The commandments of the Lord. That is what he means, speak with authority, by the authority of God's word, that it has authority. So this is just a diagram to help us understand. What we're doing is we're focusing on the word. And as we're focusing on the Word, we want to, to find out the different areas where we can utilize God's Word and in what way we're going to utilize God's Word. And when this is our plan, when we understand this and we do this, listen, we're going to be more effective teachers. Because it's not about us. It's not about us. But that doesn't mean your role and your responsibility is not important. So step number one. Hebrews chapter 5, 12-14. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as need of milk, 
And not of strong meat, for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs, belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of uses reason of use rather have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The number one thing you need to do if you're going to put together a sermon is narrow it down. Narrow, narrow down the subject by determining the purpose of your study. Do you, ever, do you ever just stop and say, what's the purpose? What am I trying to accomplish here? Maybe we're interested in a certain topic. Were you going to do something with that? Do you have a purpose for teaching about that topic? Because the truth is, if you don't have a purpose, you, you may teach some things about that topic, but you may, may just be all over the place. And I'll tell you the other thing that happens. We don't just get off the trail. What we do is we stand there in the trail and we go like this. What's that do to you? Makes me dizzy, intellectually dizzy. <laughs> you know, a 30-minute sermon can seem like it's an hour and a half if we're just sitting here doing this the whole time. So, so be very careful. Narrow it down. Find what is the purpose and also be realistic. Be realistic. We went through training with a guy who, who had just been a Christian a little bit under a year. And we said, what topic are you interested in? He said, I want to teach on Revelation. Revelation. I, I admired his ambition, but not his realism. <laughs> Stay in your lane, okay? We're, we're all young at times and we're very zealous. If you don't understand what you're going to teach, you have no business teaching it. I want to repeat that. If you don't understand what you're teaching, you have no business teaching it. So if you can't grasp, you can't understand in your mind, how are you going to communicate that to other people? It's going to take time and growth. And that's what he's talking about here. He says someone that uses milk is what? Unskillful. Just keep working to study. Keep reading God's Word. Eventually you will gain some skill from your senses being exercised. And then you can start teaching the more complex or the more meaty concepts that we find in Scripture. And number, number two on this one, let God's Word work. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I want you to see this analogy that he uses. He doesn't say God's word is a sword. He said it's like a sword, but it's also superior to a sword. Now, what does a two-edged sword do? If you look through history and the, the manufacturing of weapons, a two-edged sword was really not for slicing. It was for penetration. That's why it had two edges. Well, what's he saying? It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And it does what? It pierces. It, what does it pierce? The deepest part of a man. The soul, the spirit, the joints, the marrow, the heart, the intents. Can you do that? If you're thinking yes, no, we don't have that power. We may have the power to help someone's perspective or change their mind, but God's Word is powerful. God's Word transforms people. It don't just change their mind about something. It completely changes them from the inside out. Let the Word work. I've seen people sit down in a Bible study and just read the Word and make no comments and seen it be effective. Why? Because God's Word's powerful. 
I've seen a big six foot five man who would stand up in the face of about any person and fight them, cry like a baby because of what he saw in God's word when the mirror was held up to him. God's word is powerful. Again, this is not about us. It's not about a show. This is about people needing God's word in their life. They need to understand God's word. So use it. Let it work. 1 Peter chapter 4.11, if any man speak, listen, let him speak as what? The oracles of God. The oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If people leave the assembly and the thought that they think is, man, that guy is great, we failed. What people should be leaving with is God is great. God is great. Do you see what he says here? You speak as the oracles of God. Why? That God in all things may be glorified. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, according as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. I've had people tell me there's just not solutions for my problems in God's word. That is wrong and false. That is wrong and false. If we believe that, it's because our perspective about our problem is incorrect. God has given us everything that pertains to this life and how to be godly. He's equipped us with all that information. We need to stay in our lane, use God's word, and let God's word work. And then Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of what? His might. His might. All right, we've gone about 50 minutes, so I'm, we're going to take a, a short break and open up the floor for some questions at this time. And uh, we'll do that for a few minutes, and then after those questions are over, uh, we'll take a real quick bathroom break and come back. All right, so again, one at a time, guys. Uh, any questions? Must need to go to the bathroom. All right, well, that makes it easy. Okay, let's, let's take a 10-minute break, and uh, then we'll come back, and, and we'll restart. And we're going to, we've got one more little section before we dive into the handout, and then we'll talk about the purpose of the handout and how this can help us be more effective. So you're dismissed. All right, if you'll take your seat. Please take a seat. We're going to get started again. If you're on your handout, we're, we're on page 7. Page 7 of the handout. This, we're on step 2 on page 7. Okay, so we, we hammered this last Saturday. Study, study, study. This cannot be overemphasized. Uh, let's go back to 2 Timothy 2.15. He says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We cannot impress how important it is that we put the time in to looking into God's word, to ensuring that what we're teaching is right, what we're teaching is true, that we have handled it the correct way, we've looked at the context, we're using it the right way. And Brother Craig and I were having a conversation during the break, and, 
And, and you know, some, sometimes you, you get really excited about an idea, and I remember getting excited about an idea, and I had this idea, and I thought, well, what am I going to use to teach on this? And so I went looking, and I found all these things that I could use to teach on that idea, and I saw that sermon later on. I went and looked back at it, and I thought, I don't think I use any of these verses for what they actually mean. I mean, be very careful when you come up with a purpose and a topic that you don't try to squeeze God's Word into some place just to prove a point. And it's kind of like doing a puzzle, you know. Uh, you get a puzzle, and if a lot of times you'll find a piece, you'll go, I think that fits there, and you put it there, you go, oh, well, that's kind of stubborn. And you, so you start pushing on it a little bit more, and if you push it hard enough, it'll go into the place. But then you go to put other pieces around it, and you realize it don't fit. It doesn't fit. And, and, and I'll tell you, if, you'll, if you utilize what we talked about last week, which is put the study in, make sure you're understanding the passage, use the analogy of faith, if you remember that, compare it to other scriptures, make sure that all the pieces fit around it, don't just shove it into the puzzle. Put the time in to study. And one of the beauties of the process we're going to talk about is if we use this, if we're disciplined with this, it will force us to study every verse at least five times. At least five times. So we'll talk more about study in just a moment. Going back to 1 Timothy 4, I want to look at these verses together. 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16, because we've, we've hit on 13 and 15 and 16. Uh, we're not going to necessarily deal with 14 during the q and I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't veer us off into a rabbit trail about that. We can discuss that later. But I want to impress upon you again the idea of giving attention to reading. Give your attention to reading. And if you remember from our study last week, that means to hold our mind towards something, to adhere to it or to be glued to it. That means we've got to spend a lot of time in reading. Give your attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Now notice verse 15. Meditate. On these things, give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. I want you to notice something. Paul had an expectation for Timothy as a teacher that he would do what? Progress. That he would grow. Progress. And how do you progress? Give your attention to reading. Meditate on God's Word. And give yourself entirely to it. That's why I said we cannot express this and impress this enough. Study, study, study. That's what this is all about. Taking what we've studied and communicating it. Take heed, listen, to yourself and to the doctrine. That word take heed, it has the idea, similar idea of give attention to. Be aware of it. Examine it. Look at it. Take heed to yourself for the doctrine. Now, continue in them. For in doing this, you shall both save yourself and those that hear you. Understand as a teacher, you can affect someone's salvation. You can. I'll tell you, that's a scary thought, isn't it? That something we teach could cause somebody to do the wrong thing. And that's a very serious matter. And so what's he say? You take heed. You spend time in God's Word. You glue yourself to it. You meditate on it. You give yourself entirely to it. That's where all this starts. It starts with study. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. And, and I think this is later in your guide, but we're going we're gonna to skip around a little bit. We're going to come back to page 7 in just a moment. 
but we will have the verses up on the screen. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you. What is the idea of treasure here? What does he mean, treasure my commands in you? So what is a treasure? Someone says, oh, well, that's a, a big chest full of gold. Or I want you to think of it this way. Treasure is something that is so valuable that you keep it locked up. You take God's Word and you view it for what it is, a valuable treasure. And what do you do? You store it. It's not just about reading it or memorizing it for the week. You know, a lot of times I did that in testing in school. We'd learn some information so we could take the test. And then what happened to that information? I don't know. It went somewhere, but it didn't stay in here. So when you're studying a subject and you're trying to learn, it's not just about, well, I'm going to study all this information so I can give a good talk. No, we're going to study this information and memorize it. Why? So we can get it in here. This isn't just about me communicating to you and you growing from it. I need to grow from it as well. Treasure these things within you so that you incline your ear, verse 2, to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. I'll tell you what will really motivate you in your study life, and that's to understand that God's Word is a treasure. And then seek it as such. We seek what's valuable, don't we? We give our time to what's valuable. We give our heart to what's valuable. We give our attention and our mind to whatever it is that we see as valuable. And if that's work and you're consumed with work all the time and you need to be focused at work and need to be having a job and all that, I'm just saying, if that's the most important thing in your life, it's going to be hard to treasure God's Word. You know what Jesus said? Wherever your treasure is, there will your what be also. Your heart. Your heart will be. If we treasure God's Word, it's not going to be a, a chore to study. It's not going to be a burden to study. You know why? Because we will seek after what's valuable. He said, that's what you need to do. Seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures. And I want to pull this middle verse out for a moment. Think about it. Yes, if you cry out for discernment. How do you start your Bible study, guys, ladies? How do you start your study? And I want to encourage you to do something. When you, before you ever open the book, start with prayer. Start with prayer. Look at James chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Is anybody in here lacking wisdom? Yeah. And we all have to recognize that. I, I need your wisdom. I need your wisdom, God. And what does he say? who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Do you think God gives wisdom? He says he does. Let's look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. You know what he's describing here about a wind being driven and tossed? A, a wave being driven and tossed? You ever watch the waves of the sea? You know how much control the waves have? Zip. Zip. Gravity, the tide, the wind have total control over the wave. Is that how you want to be in life? Just being somebody just thrown over here and thrown over here. You know, he talks about being children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Same concept here. He says, when a man asks God for something and he doesn't believe that God will give it to him, he said, he's out of control. 
out of control. In fact, he says, don't expect to receive anything from God. Is that how you pray? You need to understand, when you pray to God and ask Him for wisdom, He's going to give it to you. You say, well, great, then I don't need to study. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. Where does wisdom come from? We just read that in Proverbs chapter 2, didn't we? So that you incline your ear to what? To wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Understanding what? My commandments. Pray before you seek, and God gives. He gives, but pray. Remember to pray before you study. And those of you who are putting together a lesson, I would encourage you also to pray to God to help direct your heart to have the right attitude and the right intention for why you're studying and seeking these things out so that it's not about selfish ambition or self-serving. That's important. So that we have the right intentions. Because if we have the right intentions, it's going to ensure that we will handle God's word in the correct way. Proverbs chapter 2 verse 6, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of the saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every. Good path. You know what this is? This is Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. That by reason of use, his senses are exercised to discern both good and evil. It's the same concept. Acts chapter 13, verse 15, it says, And after reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, You men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And I find that interesting that they would go into the synagogue and these men would allow them the opportunity to share something. That's a privilege. It's a privilege. And I want you to know something. It is not your right to get up here. It's a privilege. It's a privilege that we've been allowed to stand up and address the people of God. And I hope we take that very, very seriously. Okay, I want to dive in a little bit into your chart here. Let's see if I'm getting too far ahead of myself. I had one more passage. We'll dive into the chart in a minute. We're on page 7, by the way. We'll get into that in just a moment. I want to read one more passage with your set of passages from Romans 12. He says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. I just want to say something. Not everybody is a teacher, and there's no shame in that. There's no shame in that. Not everybody needs to be a teacher, and I don't want to get into next week's uh, study that we're going to do, but not everybody needs to be a teacher. But notice, everybody's a part. Everybody's a part. He says, the person that is a teacher, let him teach. And then notice he says, he that exhorteth on exhortation. You know what? Some people are not public teachers, but I'll tell you what they're real good at. They're real good at doing this. And helping somebody. They're real good at that. And if you're good at that, then do that. Help. Teach that way. There's a lot of different places that we teach. Do you think that we teach by giving? Absolutely. And it's often been said, you actually live a better sermon than you preach. Right? And so don't think, well, I can't get up and teach publicly. I'm not useful in that way. No, you're useful. You're a useful part of the body of Christ. 
But I, but I do want to specifically address our public teachers. And also for anyone who's interested in putting together Bible study. Page number seven. What you're going to see here is just a list of scriptures. We're not going to take time to go through all these scriptures that would take a long time. I don't know how long, but a long time. But what this is, is it's a collection of scriptures. And I think that what we have on the board here is just one half of that list. And so what we're going to use here, and this is a, a sermon that Clint built on covetousness, and I don't feel like reinventing the wheel, because what he's done is a really good organized job of helping us understand how this works. So I want you to look not only on page 7, but if you've got one of these handouts in front of you with the four pages, this front page is for this purpose. So what we have here is several different forms of the word covetousness. So you have the word covet, and then you have the word coveteth, which is King, a King James term. It would be covets with an S if you're looking in New King James, and then covetous. And so these are just different forms of the same concept. And what we're doing is we're looking up those verses. So this is often how we start out by building a sermon. We'll say, okay, I want to preach on covetous, so I want to go find verses that teach about covetousness. Okay? And so we go through and we look at different forms of the word and we write down verses that we see that we might want to use. And I want to stress that again. We might want to use them, okay? So we got more here. Coveted and covetousness. Now, guys, if I was going to use every one of these verses in a sermon, we're probably talking about two hours. So we're not going to use all these verses, but what we are going to do is we're going to look at them and collect them, right? We're going to collect them and see if these are verses that we might use. We don't know yet. We're just looking at the verses. They may have a potential being used. So here's where I've always struggled. Once we get all those verses together, what do you do with them? What do you do with them? You just go, well, I think that goes here and this goes here and we'll just make this long list. And like, again, I think we've probably all heard those sermons where where we're looking through there and we, and we hear somebody teach and it's just a bunch of random verses that have the word covetousness in it. And we don't really know what the point is. So how is it that we take this information and we put it in a way that we can all understand it? So that's the second part of our process. So once we get a collection of verses, go to your second page here on the, on the four-page handout and you're going to see this chart. Okay, so we've got four columns here. Doctrine of proof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And so the first thing we do is we go through every one of these verses. And as we go through these verses, we're looking at these verses to determine this. Does this teach us something about covetousness? Does this verse, would this verse be a reproof verse? That is, does it convict us about covetousness or expose what covetousness is in a way that would strike the heart or pierce the heart as we saw? Does this verse show us how to correct the problem of covetousness or is this really more about living the right kind of life that would keep me from covetousness? So we got a direction now. We're, we're organizing and categorizing these verses and you might look up here on the page or on your page and say, okay, why are there not breaks in some of this? So let's talk about that. If you notice here on this page, there are five different lines down here that have no lines. So what is that about? Well, that's about this. Sometimes you'll read a verse like such as Romans 13, 9 in the covetousness lesson that do multiple things. And so this verse may do all three of these things. It may reprove, it may correct, it may instruct. A verse like Joshua 7, 21, it may teach us about something and reprove. 
And so as you're categorizing these things, maybe that verse does multiple things. But what we're doing is we're placing these in, a, in, in an area where we know what we're going to do with them. It's not just about throwing these verses out there that we like that all have the word covetousness, but now we're kind of honing these things down where we know exactly what we're going to do with them. So there's also numbers. If you see the small numbers on your page that are up here attached to these verses, okay, what those numbers represent is our note page that's on the very back. And so if you see the very back two pages, those say notes and they've all got numbers, okay, so each one of these numbers is in correlation to the numbers on these charts. And so what are we doing? Okay, we're going to read the verse once to determine if we're going to put it in our collection of verses. So we studied the verse at least once in more of a mild, general way. The second time we studied the verse, what do we do? We tried to say, okay, what does it do? Does it, is it doctrine, reproof, correction, or instruction, or righteousness? Now before we make our notes, what do we have to do? Study it again. And then make our notes. Now, what do I want to use this verse for? What do I want to teach out of this verse? And so we've already studied the verses three times. And then we're going to have to go back after we make our notes and look at them again. And now we start building our outline from this. Because we know what verses we're going to use by this point because we've looked through the notes. We'll start marking out the ones that we may not want to use. And what are we going to do? We're going to start with doctrine. That's where we start. We start with doctrine. So which, which verses that I collected that, that are about doctrine am I going to use and how am I going to use that? This is where the, the, the hardest part of the process comes, but it's really not that hard. Because once you start reading the notes that you've, that you've already written down, what you're going to see is they line themselves up. You're, you're going to notice, okay, this one, this one is basic defining. This defines what it is. This would go next in the process. And I'll tell you what this is. This is discipline is what it is. It's simple discipline. And again, this is not my strong suit. And so I, need, I needed something like this for a long time. I'll tell you, I very rarely use this now. Very rarely. And I'll tell you why. Because I used it so much that whenever I, whenever I go to build a lesson, my senses are exercised to already do this. And I don't have to get all this out and do it. But what I'm telling you is for a while really buckle down and start doing this. I, whatever level teacher you are, especially you young teachers, use this. Uh, if, you, if you need more of these, tell me. I'll send it to you electronically. Uh, we can get a piece of paper, write down your emails. I'll send you all this electronically. But utilize this, and the more you use it, the more you'll start to just do it by nature rather than having to sit down with this. Because I'll tell you, when you first start doing this, it can be tedious, but so is exercise. It's very tedious. Anything that you start doing is going to be tedious. But I promise you guys, if you'll do this, it will greatly help you in organization. So I want to look at the outline that's, that Clint's got on here of covetousness. See, we are on page 11. Page 11. Page 11. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going we're to kind of go through this sermon real quick. And it's, it's not going to take us the sermon length. We're just going to kind of do an overview of it. 
But, but again, I don't want to assume that everybody understands what we're talking about, so I want to, I want to apply that now. So once we have it from here, and we're building an outline, all we're doing is we're taking this first column on the left, this doctrine column, and we're putting that in our outline at the top. Okay, so that's what we've got first, and I forgot to advance the slide. Apologize for that. This is what we're looking at right here. So the first thing that he does is define covetousness. He defines it. And so we've got a Greek definition, greedy desire to have more. I'll tell you what, right there, that bites, doesn't it? All we did was read a definition of a word. You know what people are doing? Man, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> greedy desire to have more. How does the Word of God use that? And so there's verses here that teach us about covetousness. What it is, and not only what it is, is it right or wrong, or is it something uh, that has a great effect in our life? So we got Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say? Is the law sin? God forbid, nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. This is very simple. God is against covetousness, isn't He? Then we talk about lust, which lust... Here, the word lust means a desire, a craving, or a longing. Now think about those two things in relation. What are we doing? We're expanding the definition here into other areas. So what is covet? A greedy desire to have more. And now what does Paul say here about lust? What is lust? It's related to covetousness. So where does covetousness come from? It comes from our own desire. I'm, I, again, I'm not going to go through this whole sermon. I'm just trying to get you to see the simplicity of this and also that simplicity is powerful. Simplicity is powerful. You, the more complicated you make a concept, the less people you're going to reach. I want you to really think about that. The more complicated it is, the less people you're going to reach. You might reach the, the very intelligent students of God's Word. They may be the ones with the least amount of need for this. Think about that. You know why? Because the more and more we study and read God's Word, the more our life is going to be in order. So make it simple. And that's what it is. It's simple. It's very simple. Colossians 3, 5, we read this earlier. Mortify therefore your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now we've added another layer. Not only is covetousness greed, not only is it against the will of God, Paul calls covetousness idolatry. So we're getting stronger and stronger and stronger. You know what happens? All we're doing is defining the words, and the word of God is pricking the heart. That's what it's doing. It's working. We're just letting it work. Letting it work. Okay, so then he moves into idolatry. What is idolatry? It's the worship of false gods. And then he talks about idolatry. And again, we're not going to go in and read all of this. Uh, then he's got uh, Exodus twenty seventeen also to expand, you know, what can be coveted here? And we got your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, manservant, maidservant, ox, or donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So, you know, what can be coveted? Anything, anything can be coveted. Anything that doesn't belong to you can be coveted. And again, we're, we're expanding the definition. So we're done with that that section, and now everybody has a good grasp of what covetousness is before we move on. How important is that? That everybody knows what the point of the lesson is, knows every realm of what we're going to discuss before we start moving on into these other areas. And I, I want to remind you again, I know I'm being repetitive, but I really want this to be driven home. If you don't define what something is, you can reprove somebody all day, and they'll never go, well, I have that problem. You know what they're thinking? I don't know who has that problem. Because they don't know what we're talking about. 
So start with doctrine. Start with doctrine. Okay. We're in the reproof section, which is down at the middle, uh, the bottom half of, the, of, of the page 11 now. Symptoms of covetousness. So when you think about rebuke, it doesn't necessarily mean something just says, don't do this. But think about this. If we're going to show a mirror to somebody, how, how do you know something's wrong with you when you look in the mirror? Because something's different, right? Like if you always see the same thing and everything looks fine, you, you don't really get concerned about it. You know, I've got, got this little skin tag that came up a while back, and the first time I saw it, I thought, is that cancer? You know why? Because my family has a history of skin cancer. Well, guess what I did every time I went to the mirror? <laughs> Watch that thing. And then somebody said, that's just a skin tag. <laughs> Whew. You know what I don't do when I go to the mirror now? Look at that skin tag, because I know what it is. We know what? Sometimes we see something else, and it concerns us, and we go, that looks like a problem. Somebody goes, that might be a problem. You go, really? Yeah. I, I, you know, my, my sister's cousin's brother used to have one of those, and, and it was this and that. And we go, what do we do? We go to the doctor. Why? Because we see it's a real problem. Symptoms are a good way of defining a problem and of determining if we have a problem in our life. So what Clint has done here in his sermon is talked about symptoms of covetousness. How, how would somebody know if they're covetous? And again, we're not going to go through all this, but what we've got several examples. One of those is looking for loopholes, and that is, that is how can we be uh, able to obtain greedy gain? How can we obtain greedy gain and yet justify it? <laughs> It happens, right? Deceit is another one. A general failure to do God's will, point C. Unmanageable debt or selfishness. You know, that's a, that's a real good indicator that somebody's covetous if they got just a, a, a massive amount of debt that they can't afford to pay. And what, again, what you're doing is you're just you're laying God's word out there for people to look at and examine, and what's it doing? It's working. It's piercing the heart. And so at this point, everybody knows what the problem is, and there's probably a lot of people convicted about it. And then let's move on into correction. Into correction. So the first thing he has here is recognize the source of the problem. Why? Because that's what we have to fight against, is what is causing this problem in our life. That's how we're going to correct it. So we go to Mark chapter 7, and what does Jesus say? There in the middle of that verse... Thefts, covetousness, wickedness. So he mentions covetousness. And he says those things come from within. From within what? From within the heart. And they defile a man. So what is this? It's a heart problem. Now people know what they need to work on. They need to work on their heart. Right? You know, a lot of people think their covetousness problem may be related to I don't have enough money. That's why I'm greedy. I'm serious. That's what a lot of people think. I'm not greedy. I just don't have enough money. Where's the problem at? It's in the heart. We're learning how to correct it. So what should we do to our heart? We should guard it and change our focus. That's the next point. And then C, which again, just stop. <laughs> That's my favorite one. It's always my go-to. Just stop doing that. That's the first step. Just stop doing that. Okay, so, so we're done with the correction now. You see the flow. You see what we're doing here. All right, then instruction and righteousness. This is very closely related to what we saw in Ephesians chapter 4 earlier with the idea of just stop and also. 
Also, not only quit stealing, not only quit taking, but be a giver. We've got that same mindset here when we're looking at uh, the, the area of covetousness. So what's the first thing he's got here? Be content. Be content with what you have. If you're greedy, learn to be content. Okay, be satisfied with what you have, with what you make. Uh, be satisfied with your wages here is one thing. The soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And this is John the Baptist talking to the Roman, the Roman soldiers that were around there. And what were they saying? Uh, he's, he's calling them on repentance, and he's telling people what they should do. And they said, What do we need to do? He says, We need to quit being violent with people for greedy gain. Quit doing that. Be content with what, you're, with what you're getting. That's the first step to what you need to do to repent here. So learning contentment. Then we have Paul as an example of that. This is a very important part of correction and instruction in righteousness. Don't just go to verses that show uh, how to correct, but also show examples of people who did correct those things. And, and I'll tell you, Paul is my go-to for just about anything because he had so many problems before he came to Christ. And he, and he lived a life of transformation, was able to correct a lot of issues in his life. And he's an example. And that's why Paul, when he writes the letter, says, imitate me. Follow my example. Uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So I know we flew through that. But I want you to see here that there is structure to this. It's not complicated. I'll tell you, the hardest part of this for me is after I get 40 or 50 verses Pulling them out. That's the hardest part for me, is, is trying to decide, let's make this concise, let's make it few. But that is also important. Is I just want to use the verses that are really building upon the first thing we started on. And that's a good way of thinking about this. Start out with the simple and build a layer and build a layer and build a layer. Because you may have five verses that say the exact same thing. You know what's hard for people? This. We're going to read this verse that says this, and this verse, and it says the same thing, and this verse, and it says the same thing. Maybe that's your purpose, and that can also be a powerful thing to, to show people that the Bible actually is affirming a concept or condemning a concept to say, look, it's not only taught here, it was taught here, and it was taught here, and that tells us how important it was. So there can be a use for that, but if all we do is get up and read 10 or 12 verses and they all teach the same thing, and there's never, there's never direction, we're either just standing still on the trail or we're doing circles in the trail, then people are, you're going to lose people. And so if you ever get to a transitionary period in your sermon, guess where they're at? They're lost. And so, so when you're calling out these verses and deciding, okay, how many verses do I want to use in the doctrinal area? Look at them this way. Basic and then we're getting a little more complex, a little more complex. We're adding on to this, but we're going to keep it flowing. And that's really what this is all about, is keeping a flow, keeping a direction, keeping something that everybody can follow along with. And then you have a conclusion. And, and I want to impress this upon you too. Don't neglect to have some type of conclusion to your lesson. And I know in the marketing world they say, tell them and tell them. And then tell them again. I, I get that, okay? Sometimes that's not necessary. But what we're leading up to is the invitation. And I, I'm not going to say every lesson needs to have a powerful invitation. Because, you know, you may get up and teach something that really is not related to the invitation of Christ. But if you'll incorporate that within your lessons, how am I going to conclude this in a way 
that's very similar to what we see with Peter in Acts chapter 2. Because what does he do? Again, he teaches about Christ, and then he reproves them. He tells them their sinfulness. And then what does he tell them? Repent and be baptized. What is that? Correction, instruction in righteousness. Then what's he do? He exhorts with many other words, saying, Save yourselves. Okay, that's very simple, right? That was his invitation. Save yourselves from this untoward generation, from this backward generation. What did these guys do? Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. That's the way they use God's word. That's the way that, that Timothy was told to use God's word as well. All right, so we're going to be breaking for lunch a little early today because we flew through that. I want to talk about confidence for a moment. And I thought this was a really good checklist. A lot of times we're very shaken in our confidence. And, you know, I've looked at several different polls and all these polls are the same. And most of you have probably already heard this, but do you know what the number one thing that people are afraid of is? What do you think number two is, Hugh? It's death. Number two is death. Number one's public speaking. Scarier than death. <laughs> you know why? Because we're all, we're all afraid we're going to mess up or say something, you know, that makes us look silly or be embarrassing. And sometimes we're worried because we compare ourselves among, among ourselves and we worry that I'm not going to be as good as that person. And, and if we're really trying to find confidence, what we don't want is arrogance and pride. That, that should never be what drives us. We should have no confidence in the flesh. But I want you to notice here this confidence checklist. If the reason why we're confident is because we have a natural speaking ability, I'll tell you, that could, that could fall or fail. It could fall or fail. Experience or education in public speaking. That's another thing that a lot of people have confidence in or good or better than others like we just mentioned. Or lots of compliments. I'm going to tell you, I love the brethren and the brethren are really good to give you compliments. Really good. I appreciate the encouragement, all the encouragement that people have given me. But I tell you, don't use that as a standard to decide whether or not you're, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I'll tell you why. Because your grandmother loves you. And she's going to think you're the best preacher and tell you the best preacher. And, and I love my grandmother. But my grandmother tells me that too. All the time. But that, that could be intoxicating. Don't, don't, don't buy into that. That's not what we need to be seeking after. But notice this other side. If the reason why we have confidence is because we did what God said, we, we put the diligent study and meditation in, we have put this lesson together or this study together with a desire to please God and we're teaching the truth in love and we'll talk more about that next week and we've prayed for wisdom, where's our confidence in? Well, it's not in me. And that's what I want to impress upon you. Your confidence doesn't need to be here. It needs to be from God. There's a reason why the apostles were emboldened to stand up and preach the gospel of Christ to people that they knew would hate them and persecute them and even try to take their life. You know why? Because all their confidence was in God. You think about Paul talking about his speaking ability, what others viewed about his speaking ability. If he let that get to him, it could have discouraged him. But I'll tell you what else. It could also consume you if you get that on the other side of the pendulum. 
You start measuring yourself against other people. So be very careful what you put your confidence in. Okay, so before we break, and we are early, but we are going to break for lunch. And, and I want to say a few things before we do that. When we come back this afternoon, uh, the plan is we're going to have some of the men come up toward the front. And I'm going to open up both of these whiteboards. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through an exercise. We're going to put a lesson together. And it's not going to be a big lesson, but we're going to try to take about 15 scriptures. And we're going to go through this process and those of you who are ladies, I, I hope that you don't go, oh, I don't want to come back for that. I hope you'll come back for that and kind of watch how that goes because I'm going to ask some of the more experienced teachers to help along with that. And, and I think it's going to help us see how they look at a scripture, they go through a scripture. And as we do that, we're going to start categorizing those things and then talk about where maybe those things could go. So uh, that's what we have planned for this afternoon. I'm going to open up the floor again for questions from the men. Uh, are there any questions about the handout? I feel like we just flew through that, but I'm hoping that was simple. Brother Hugh. Okay. Would you elaborate on the notes and how he developed that and how that fits into the process? To the, to the actual taking that into it? Absolutely. Right, yes, okay, yes, thank you. Like I said, we flew. Okay, so here's the notes. Okay, we're going to back up for a moment. This is note number one at the top. If you're looking at this, this is on, what was that, page seven? Is that right? Okay, seven, seven and eight is where we're going to be looking. Seven and eight. I'm sorry, don't listen to me. It's not seven and eight, it's eight and nine. Thank you, okay. Okay, so, so most likely, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I just skipped right over that. Most likely what, what, what you're doing here is, let's say that we decide to talk on covet or covetousness. Where I would start is, is I would either use a lexicon. Uh, I would use a Thompson's chain reference or something like that. Those are very helpful. Now, I will tell you, be careful with the Thompson chain reference because they may try to link up a bunch of verses that, that may have the same word, but again, the thoughts may not all be in line. But they're a great resource for trying to look up verses that may all be related to one word. Now, I will tell you, I've got an electronic version of eSword, and so if I'm looking up a word, I just type it into the search engine. It gives me a long list of scriptures. Now, I will tell you that sometimes that list may have 135 verses, and I look through every one of them, every one of them. And, I, and I'm slowly deciding, what, what am I going to use here? And... You may be going, that's a lot of time. It is. It's a lot of time. But, but guys, if you're going to be thorough about this, that's what you need to do is take the time to find the verses that best help you in learning. Do you, are you trying to add something to that, Jared? Go ahead. For this example, Chris did use Romans. Okay. Uh, he went through categorically and did exactly what we're talking about. Find those verses that did what we're talking about. Write those down. Okay, so, so once we've done that, we've got that list of scriptures, then we're going to take that, and again, we're going to put that in our doctrine and reproof and correction, instruction, and righteousness. So 
Right here we've got Exodus 20 and 17 and Deuteronomy 5 and 21 and then there's a 1. So what this is, is this is a note that's based on whatever we learned from studying those two verses. So if you look in the outline, and they, and they teach the same thing, that's why they're both there. Let's go back to the outline. Was that on page 11? Yes, on page 11, if you'll notice, where is Exodus chapter 20 and 17? It's right down here on point four. So even though that was the top of the list in that doctrine section when we started categorizing, it doesn't mean that that's going to be the first scripture we use. We've determined that by the notes that we've made. And once we look at those notes together, like, oh, I pushed the wrong button, I'm sorry. So we got these different verses about doctrine. We've kind of figured out exactly what verses we want to use. And as we start plugging those in, I'm going to look at 1, 3, 9, 11, 14. So when we're on our notes page, I'm going to read note 1. And when I say 3 and 9 and 13, and, and I'm looking at those, and I may try to even pull those out. So especially if I'm doing this electronically, I may pull those out and put them side by side and just look at them and say, okay, what, what's the basic thing that I see here? What's the most basic? Because we want to start with that. And then I'm going to look at the other three. Once I've got that one down, I've got three more. And so I say, well, what do I want to do with that verse? And I read that verse. And let's just look through the notes here in the notes that are made. Break your clicker. Let's just read through the notes section here. Hopefully I'm answering Hugh's question. If I can find the notes section, there we go. All right, so we're on page eight. If you can't read that, if that print's too small, we're on page eight. <clears throat> so Exodus chapter 20, 17, and also Deuteronomy 5, 21, that first note there says, we notice in these parallel passages, that just means they're teaching the same thing, that one of the Ten Commandments was not to covet anything. We learned that the object of covetousness can be anything. So there's two things he's written down there that he's made a note of. Now, why did he use this later and not at the first? Why not use that at the first? Because he made a decision that this last part that we learned, the object of covetousness, can be anything. He wants to save that for later. Why? Well, because he's looked at the other notes and decided, I want to teach this first. So what was it that he decided to teach first? So let's look at the note on Romans 7 and verse 7, which is the first verse he used. So right up here on this one right here. It says, to covet is to lust. If you branch from here into lust passages, be sure they stay within the purpose of your current study. As we mentioned before, chain references are endless. Now, that's Clint's note to us on the guide, not his note to himself. Oh, that's what that's for there in the parentheses to help you understand. He just is saying covetousness is lust. So from there, he branched out into lust. So as we're looking at covetousness, and let's go back actually to the Whoops, went too far right here. He made a determination that as we're dividing, as we're defining rather covetousness, we're going to start with this basic thing. What is covetousness? And he said, it's lust. What teaches us that? Romans 7, 7. And so from that note, he's determined, I want to use this first. And then I'm going to use this next. And guess what? 
that's a verse that we've added to our sermon. Why? Because once we studied it, we determined that, well, this is related to lust. Well, now what do I got to do? I got to go find passages about lust and decide what, what is it about lust that I want to add to this. So, so we've added a word to this. We've added a layer into that. But that's really what these notes, does that answer your question? That's really what these note sections are for is, is because as you're organizing, every time we're adding another layer of information, we know the verse has the word in it at first, and then we know based on that verse whether it's doctrine approved for incorrection, instruction, and righteousness. And then the note section is to add more information. Now that we know what this verse teaches, if I took all of these different teachings and I, and I put them together, what would make more sense if I'm teaching it? That's, that's the way those notes are being used. Does that clarify things? Somewhat? Okay. All right, any more questions? Titus. Sorry, Craig. Okay. Uh, usually two places. Now, th this is probably different, uh, but one of the ways that I choose topics is as I travel around to different churches. I see common issues with church members, things that may be common struggles that people are having. That's one thing that, that motivates me to put sermon material together. If I see that this is, this is obviously something from the world that's become prevalent in our churches, that may be one thing that I, that's in, at least in my target zone as far as building a sermon. The other one just comes from study. And so if you're, if you're studying through Scripture, a lot of times I'll be studying through Scripture and, and I'll read a story, and I'll see teachings in that story, and I go, man, I've got to develop a sermon on this because this is powerful. Uh, something that really affects me when I'm studying, I'll build a sermon around it because if I'm reading it and it convicts me and it's helpful to me, I'm going, this is going to be helpful to other people. And uh, people may develop sermons differently. Sometimes I'm asked a question by somebody about a particular topic, and as we get to visiting about it, I may think, well, you know what, I need to learn more about that. That may be another way. So I, I, there's really not a canned answer to that. And, but that's really how I decide what topics I'm going to speak on is based on whatever the need is at the time or based from my study. Do y'all have other, do you have some? Yeah, that, that, that really is, and, and that's why I would suggest uh, have several sermons, sermon ideas, rather topics, maybe in, at least in your, your line of sight. And I'm not saying put together several sermons at once, but have several topics that you're thinking about. And, and while you have those topics there, start thinking about what you're going to do with them. Because sometimes that takes more time than just coming up with a topic, is, is I've because, you know, you take like something like faith, okay? If I decide to preach a sermon on faith, there are endless branches of that tree. Endless branches of that tree if you want to talk about faith. So, you know, for instance, you might, you might just have a sermon trying to help people understand what faith is or, or the different usages of the word faith, like it can mean believe or it can mean trust or it can mean 
the faith as in the entire religion of Christianity, the doctrine of Christianity. And so you see those words being used. It can mean faithful, uh, like in the elder uh, qualifications when it talks about having faithful children, talking about them being loyal to their father. There's a lot of different ways that word could be used. So you have to kind of take a branch of that tree. That can be a challenge. I, I would say, um, talk to your elders. That's what I'd say. You're welcome. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. If you're having trouble coming up with topics, uh, try to get some of these guys that already preached to study with you. And, and as you're doing studies, I promise you that will generate sermon ideas. Uh, I get a lot of sermon ideas from studying with other people. Uh, Jackson and I try to do a Zoom study usually once a month. That doesn't always turn out, but I usually walk away from that study with a few sermon ideas just because of conversations we had. And that, that's another thing to generate, you know, sermon ideas is just spend time in the Word with other people. You're about to expose me, Craig. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble for this. So I'll just, but, but since he asked, I've got to be honest. So I've, I've got a little holder for my phone that sits under my mirror. And I drive a lot of rural roads. And, if, and I'll keep my notes open. And there's a little button down in the bottom right corner that's a microphone button. And a lot of times I click that button and as I'm driving in the quiet. I'm actually thinking out loud. Now, that may seem bizarre, and I know I, you're probably going to tell me I shouldn't be texting and driving. Well, I'm not. I'm just speaking. But, but you know, the, the only problem with that is a lot of times when I get to my destination, I go back reading through my notes. I don't exactly enunciate every word because I'm from West Texas. So my dictation software gets a little bit confused, but I can usually make out whatever it was that I said. But I'm the same way. If I don't write it down, I will forget it. 100% of the time. So, <clears throat> so am I very organized in that? No, I'm not. But I do have like a big, long, you know, list of notes that I've got on my phone from just thoughts that I have. And, you know, a lot of time I, I have a thought and I text it to somebody and say, I was thinking about this. And then we'll have a conversation about it. And then that helps me remember it. So that, yeah, if I don't write it down, it's, it's I'll forget in an hour. I think it depends on what your purpose of the study is, number one, and also, is it going to be helpful? Because I think it's helpful to say, you know, in, there's, there are instances where the word faith, for instance, since we brought that up, just means believe. Like in Romans chapter 4, Abraham believed God, that that's the literal definition of the word. That can help people understand it. Now, am I going to harp on every synonym of the word faith? That might not be expedient or, or even helpful, so... 
I think you just have to use judgment on that. Uh, I will say use a thesaurus also. Um, because if you're looking at it, like, like in this instance where we've got covet, we might get so centered on that word covet that we miss a lot of verses in the Bible that might actually teach about that. It just uses a different word. And so get a thesaurus out too and say, okay, what are, what are synonyms of covet? And then you can go search for that word. And then, then you'll, get actually, you'll, you'll cover a lot more ground and have a lot more things to work with. So. No, I, no I, don't, I don't think that that's always, always the circle. Um, and, and I'll tell you this. For me, the fact that the same thing is taught in several places, that, that strengthens my faith. And I know that does other people as well. So if you're going to do that, then, then I would do that. But I just, I just wouldn't do it a lot. Like, you know, you do that a whole bunch just over and over and over. And then it gets very tedious and hard to follow. One of the advantages that we have is we have PowerPoint. And so if you're going to go through several verses that say the same thing, that's a lot quicker than having everybody turn over here and turn over here. And so for time constraint, we do have an advantage of being able to put those up on the PowerPoint and do that. I just wouldn't, I just wouldn't have a heavy dose of that in one lesson. Sharing personal things. That's probably a big, deep hole, um, but I'll, I'll give you a couple of very simple guidelines at least. Personal things can be helpful. Uh, there's also TMI, too much information that people really don't need. I'd be careful about sharing personal things, if, especially if they're not applicable, to help teach something biblical. Now, if something personal is going to help teach something biblical, and it's not going to be embarrassing or draw too much attention to us or something like that. Paul used his person several times in his sermons. He, he talked about who he was and what he'd done and how Christ had changed his life. And so obviously there's a real value to being personal. I would just say be careful about not doing that too much and making something about us or, or again sharing information that, that really is not helpful. Does that kind of answer? Obviously, there's a lot of nuances to that, guys. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay. Uh, I'll let one of you other guys have the floor because I don't know what, what all the details about next.